Psalm 2. Luke Akins is a professional skydiver and stuntman. He had done some pretty cool stuff for movies like Iron Man, but he wanted to kick it up to the next level and do what had never been done before, which was jump out of an airplane without a parachute and land on a net that was set up on the ground. It would be the most dangerous stunt that had ever been done, and he took two years to train for this. The day finally came for him to pull it off, and it was a beautiful, sunny, gorgeous day in the deserts of California. He boarded his Cessna jet, which took him to 25,000 feet altitude. The door swung open, and then he jumped. It began his free fall to the earth. With the wind whipping all around him, he quickly reached a terminal velocity of 120 miles an hour. And from 25,000 feet, that's five miles. There's no way he could have seen that net on the ground. So he actually used the GPS to navigate him through the air. And he fell for two minutes straight, just steering his body with only his arms and legs. He had no suit, no wingsuit, no other equipment. The whole thing was broadcast live on TV. Friends and family waited anxiously at the bottom near the net, including his wife and four-year-old son. As they anxiously watched, the question was, would he make it? Would Luke land on that net? With about 200 feet to go, with one second remaining, Luke flipped on his back, tucked in his chin, and then scored a perfect landing to the cheering crowd. Luke lived to tell about jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. But imagine trying to jump out of an airplane without a parachute or without a net and with the goal of living to tell about it. Well, that would be pointless because your chances of survival would be just about zero. In today's psalm, we see uh, the pointlessness of rebelling against God and his anointed. History is littered with failure upon failure of creatures who desired to be the creature, the creator, jumping out of the plane without a parachute and then landing to their destruction. The point of Psalm 2 is, is simple and important. It's simply bend or break. Bend or break. Bend the knee or be broken into bits. And this is a comfort for us as God's people because we know that our God reigns, that no matter what is going on, the crazy stuff that's going on in this world, the terrorism, the fear, the ungodly, the wicked who abuse their authority, those who persecute the church, we know that ultimately they will serve the Son or be shattered by Him. Psalm 2 has 12 verses that are neatly divided into four separate sections, and each one is three verses long. And I'm going to call, and the, the titles for each section are Scheming, Setting, Shattering, and Serving. So Scheming, Shattering, Setting, shattering, and serving. First part is scheming, verses 1 through 3. This is where we see the nations of the world pointlessly rebelling against God. Verse 1. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The nations and peoples are scheming against God. Psalms is a book of Hebrew poetry, and in the Psalms, as you read through it, you'll notice this thing called parallelism. That means you'll see lots of short and compact phrases that reinforce and reiterate previous ideas. So as you read through the Psalms, you can look for parallelism so you can appreciate this poetry and its symmetry. So we have the nations and peoples. Are these two separate groups or are they two different ways of describing one group of people? 
We'll answer that question in a moment. But for now, we want to just realize that rather than meditating on God's word day and night, like the righteous man of Psalm 1, these nations and peoples are scheming in their hearts against God. And the author asks the rhetorical question, why? Why bother? Why bother jumping out of an airplane? Why bother doing something that you know will fail? But it's not enough for the nations and the peoples to have these stupid ideas. They have to act on them. Verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These nations and peoples are rising up in a united front against the Lord and against his anointed, his God's chosen one. They want to burst upon these bonds and cast away their cords. And what they're saying is that we want to be God. We want to be king. We don't want God to tell us what to do. I love our two boys. They're four and two years old, but they can often be a pain. Uh, my wife and I will we'll tell them things like, uh, wash your hands, it's time to eat. And their answer will be, no, uh, it's time to brush your teeth so you can go to bed. And their answer will be, no, stop playing with the fridge. No, don't run out into the street. No, these children just have this inborn desire to be in charge, to reject boundaries and restrictions that are actually for their own good. And it's ironic because, you know, we feed them, provide for them, love them, and yet they choose to rebel against us. And yet, how great a rebellion is it for us to rebel against our Creator God who feeds and provides and loves us? How perverse and how wicked is that for us to do against God? And the tragedy is that history is littered with the carcasses of those who did just that. Satan tried to overthrow God and failed. Adam took from the forbidden fruit and then died. Egypt enslaved Israel and then was destroyed by the ten plagues. Luke quotes these verses from Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4. And spoiler alert, guys, Psalm 2 is a psalm about Jesus, about God's Son, God's Messiah, God's anointed one. So in Acts 4, the disciples have just gotten in trouble. They've been preaching that Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that has made a lot of religious leaders upset. And they've told the disciples to stop preaching that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But here's the thing, guys. Notice their response. Their response, they, the disciples, as they're being persecuted, they don't pray that their life would get easier. They don't pray that the persecution would stop. They don't pray for smooth sailing. Their response is simply to worship God and to ask Him for boldness. Acts 4, 24 and 25. We're going to eavesdrop on their prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Psalm 2 and now Acts 4 show us that those who persecute the church, those who harm us, those who harm the church, are actually scheming and attacking God himself. We see the Gentiles rage, but who are the peoples who are plotting in vain? Remember that question that was posed earlier? Let's read on, 26 and 27. The kings of the earth set themselves, 
and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So the peoples are the peoples of Israel. They're in on it too. Both Jews and Gentiles are scheming against God. We see sin as a universal problem. Christ is a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness for Greeks. You can also see how perverse their opposition to Christ is. I mean, it wasn't enough that Christ was poor and insignificant. It wasn't enough that they arrested him and could have thrown him into prison. It wasn't enough that they whipped him and humiliated him. They wanted him dead. So we see in the opening three verses of Psalm 2, the the ugly doctrine of sin. We see the insanity of it, the universality and its perversity. But God's not just going to be sitting around watching all of this unfold. We're going to see his response next to this. In this next section, verses 4 through 6, we're going to see God's response to this scheming, which I'm, which I'm going to call setting. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord laughs because he knows that the day, that the, uh, laughs at the wicked because he knows that their day is coming. He laughs because it's utterly pointless to jump out of an airplane without a parachute. And God laughs because the irony is just sweet. Pharaoh in Exodus is scheming against Israel, enslaving them, destroying them, all the while his very own daughter in his very own palace is raising up Moses, the future deliverer of Israel. Goliath laughs at that little shepherd boy from Bethlehem until he is struck in the head by one smooth stone from the sling of that shepherd boy. And we see in Acts 4, Pilate, Herod, and the Jewish leaders, they thought they had stopped Jesus. They thought, well, we've crucified him, we've buried him, that's the end of him. But, as we read, they gathered only to do what? Only, as we see in 428, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. They thought they were carrying out their own plan. We're just going to do away with Jesus. But what they were actually doing was carrying out God's plan. They were carrying it out to flawless perfection, doing exactly what God's hand and God's plan had predestined. The powers of this world, those in charge, those Herods, those Pilots, those religious leaders, they might seem impressive. You think of things that are powerful in this world. The United States military. You've got ships, planes, missiles, tanks. You think of the power of fear that terrorists instill in people, in whole cities and nations. But that's not how God sees it. God doesn't see it like that. Let's look at Isaiah 40, 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So that means that the superpowers of this world are nothing. The terrorists of this world are less than nothing. I mean, think about it. Think of, think of a, a drop of water in your sink or a speck of dust on your kitchen table. I mean, that's not something you fear. That's, that's something you don't even notice. These things are nothing, less than nothing compared to who God is. In verse 5 and 6, then he, then God will speak to them in his wrath 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Hebrew verb to set means to pour out. Typically, it's translated to pour out, but it's weird if the scripture says, I have poured out my king on Zion. But maybe the idea is Yahweh pouring out a cast, recreating and restoring the image of God. As you know, Adam, the first image bearer, the first image of God, failed to crush evil in the garden. He failed to put Satan out of the garden, failed to put wickedness out of the garden. But this king won't fail. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God is telling these kings and rulers who are scheming against him, I'm setting my king on Zion. One commentator says, The Lord neither negotiates with rebels nor adjusts himself to suit their demands, but simply reaffirms his royal plan. You don't mess around with this God because he's unstoppable. You can obey him and follow his plan, or you can disobey this God and still follow his plan, but it just won't work out so well for you, as we'll see in the next section. Verse 7 through 9. So after setting up the king... Yahweh and his anointed will now be shattering their enemies, seven through nine. So this is the coronation of Yahweh's king. It's like the inauguration of the president, but on a cosmic scale. Verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God is setting up his king on Mount Zion. But this is no ordinary king. This is God's own son, Yahweh's son. There's an intimacy there. And this is the opposite of how most corporations are run. A lot of, in many companies, you've got a board of directors. They appoint a CEO. And the CEO runs things from day to day, and the board might check in from time to time, but they're relatively disconnected. If the CEO does a good job, the board gives the CEO obscene amounts of stock options. And if the CEO does a bad job, the board will fire the CEO, but then give him loads of money telling him, hey, just don't sue us for firing you. And then they'll find the next hotshot CEO to take his place. But this king, this ruler is Yahweh's own son, not some executive that gets hired or fired. And these verses from Psalm 2 come straight from God's promise in the Davidic covenant, from 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. This is God speaking to King David through the prophet Nathan. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
David's going to be different. You see, God rejected the previous king, King Saul, but he's going to build a dynasty, an everlasting kingdom through David, an everlasting kingdom and throne and steadfast love that will never end. And to top it all off, God is promising sonship. He's saying to David, your sons will be my sons. I will be to them a father, and they will be my sons. And this means that because God can't lie or change his mind, the king, the anointed one of Psalm 2, has to be a Davidic monarch, has to be a king from the line of David. And this king, this Davidic monarch, will reign. And this is, these are the words spoken to the king at his, at his coronation, at the inauguration. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This verb begotten simply means to bring forth, to present. Yahweh is saying, you are my son. Today I'm presenting you to the world. God is going public with his anointed one, with his Messiah. We have similar versions of things like this in our world today. The quinceanera in Hispanic tradition happens when a young woman reaches the age of 15. She puts on a gown, reaffirms her baptismal vows, And then the whole family throws this fiesta, throws this party, this coming-of-age party for this 15-year-old. Sometimes things get a little more wild for guys. In in an island on the South Pacific, they have this ritual for young men called land diving, where, where it basically makes bungee jumping look like child's play. They construct this wooden tower that's 100 foot tall, and then they tie a rope around the ankles of this young man. And then on the other end, they tie the rope to the platform. And this young man has to jump off this 100-foot platform. And by jumping off this platform, it's symbolic of him leaving childhood behind. So each culture has their own traditions for their different transitions in life. But we see here God presenting to the world on a worldwide international scale something that's unlike anything else. It's not some neighborhood quinceanera. It's not some land-diving ritual. This is the creator of the universe setting up and appointing his king, and no ordinary king. This is one who is destined to rule the nations. And this is what we see in verse 7 and 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This king will be in charge. All the nations to the ends of the earth will belong to him as his possession. The nations might rage, the peoples might plot in vain, but this is what will happen to them. Isaiah 30, 13 and 14. Therefore, this iniquity, this scheming, this plotting, this rebellion shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly, in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments, not a shard is found. God is going to break them with his rod of iron and dash them into pieces like pottery so that not a shard is found. God's kingdom in places like Daniel 7 will break into pieces all the kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end. This is a comfort for us, church, because... We know at the end of the day, wicked nations, rulers and peoples who scheme against God and God's people, they will bend or break because God is on his throne and his kingdom is unshakable. 
And this verb break, as in break them with a rod of iron, can actually be translated another way. That's why uh, the ESV actually has a footnote which says, you shall rule. And this word rod could actually mean staff. So instead of you shall break them with a rod of iron, you could translate it as rule them with an iron staff, a firm shepherd's rod. And I think it's ambiguous because both meanings are implied there. Both meanings are there. You can either be broken into pieces by this king or you can choose to be ruled by this king. You can, be ro you can rebel and be broken or submit and be ruled. There's two options because there are two choices before us. And that brings us to this last section, serving. Because there is another way. Instead of scheming and shattering, there's serving this anointed king. You can choose to bend so you don't break. Verse 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This last part is really the most important part of Psalm 2. So have you been asleep because of the heat, <laughs> because of the humidity? This is the time to wake up. This is, this is the fourth quarter in a close game. This is where everything is on the line because God doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. God could have shattered all of his enemies instantly the moment they rebelled. But we see God opening that door to repentance. God is providing this warning because he's providing another way. He's giving these nations and peoples an opportunity to bend their knee before the anointed king, otherwise be shattered into pieces. But we don't have forever because, as we see in the text, his wrath is quickly kindled. The wrath is quickly kindled. But some of you might be wondering, well, isn't God a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger? It's a good question. might help us to look at a particular example to help us understand, like, how can this God both be slow to anger and have his wrath quickly kindled? The example is from Noah and the flood. For 120 years, Noah built this ginormous ark in the middle of nowhere when it had never rained before. And for those 120 years, God was slow to anger, waiting for the wicked people of the earth to repent, to turn from their wickedness and violence and join Noah on the ark for 120 years. But once the ark was finished, once the animals were loaded, once God shut Noah and his family into the ark, the floodgates of heaven opened flood and judgment came. In that very instant, those who were laughing at Noah for building this ridiculous ark weren't laughing any longer because God's wrath was quickly kindled. And this, rep this command to repent, repentance, is, is this worldwide command. All the kings and rulers of the earth are called upon to kiss the son, the anointed king, and the word for son is, is it's an Aramaic word. It's actually not a Hebrew word. And it's possible that the author chose Aramaic because this phrase is directed to all the surrounding nations around Israel, telling them that they need to bow to Yahweh's anointed Davidic king. 
So there's no free pass for any king, any ruler. All the leaders of the earth sit in a chain of command where they are not at the top. This means for our day and age, President Trump, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Supreme Commander Kim Jong-un, leaders of ISIS, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. For all people in authority, whether lawmakers or politicians, police, parents, pastors, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Otherwise, you perish. According to one historian, during his prosperous days, Julian the Apostate, the Roman emperor, pointed his dagger towards heaven in defiance against God, scheming against Yahweh and his anointed. Julian hated Christ and called him the Galilean. In the year 363, Julian went out to battle and was actually wounded by a spear. His wound wasn't immediately deadly. It was treated. However, on the third day, his wound burst apart. And as he looked at his body, as he saw that he was about to die, these were supposedly his last words. Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. Julian was shattered with a rod of iron by the anointed king. Repentance means there's another way, another pathway, that we, instead of scheming against the Lord and against his anointed, we can be serving the Lord, serving his anointed. We're commanded to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Some of you might be thinking, well, fear and joy, aren't they contradictory? Seems kind of odd that you would have both in there. Well, if we only have fear, it's not worship. It'd be torture. And if we only had joy, it wouldn't be worship, but pride and presumption. David Wells says, we are to know him as he is and not as we want him to be. This means when we consider the power, the majesty, the dominion, the authority, the greatness of our God and his anointed, that should bring a healthy fear in us. And when we also see that he is for us and loves us and gives grace to us, that brings us joy. True worship is always rooted in these two things. True worship stands upon these two legs, fear and joy. We're commanded not only to serve and to rejoice, but to kiss the Son, to honor the Son, to do what He says, to stop turning against Him or turning away from Him, but turning to Him, turning to what He loves. And that means for us today, do we, do we love His Word? Do we love His commands? Do we love His people? Do we love His church? Many in our day and age float from church to church. You know, they pop in or pop out. You know, they, they flirt with the church. They play around with the church. But if Christ died for the church, if it was that important to him, it must be important to us. It needs to be important to us. And if you've been coming for a while and thinking about that risen hope might be the place that God wants you to put down roots as your church home, please consider the Explore course. It's a course for those who are thinking about, you know, where to join, where to join themselves in a local body. You can sign up for that, you know, at the book nook after the service. But the commands come with a promise in this last phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Derek Kidner writes, there is no refuge from him, only in him. You save your life, you'll lose it. 
But if you lose your life for Christ and his sake, you'll find it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you as well. So that means don't find refuge in something else. Don't find happiness in your spouse or your children or your job or your bank account because none of those things will last. Don't settle for the gifts when you can have the giver, when you can find refuge in God alone. And sadly, Israel and her kings fail in this. They fell terribly short of serving the Lord with fear, rejoicing with trembling, finding refuge in him. David was a successful king in many respects. He conquered many enemy nations. The fame of Yahweh, the fame of God, Israel's God was known far and wide, and people feared King David. They feared Israel. They feared Yahweh. But David's royal house was also a royal mess. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, and then murdered her husband to cover it up. And as a result, God told David that the sword would never depart from his house, meaning the violence and bloodshed that he did to others would, be, would come to him as judgment. And you turn the page right to Psalm 3, and that's exactly what happens. Because in Psalm 3, we see that David is running, fleeing from Absalom, his very own son, who is trying to overthrow him. Solomon, David's rightful heir, would be the next king. But even under Solomon, the kingdom never reached the ends of the earth, never reached that ideal that's held out for us in Psalm 2. And things would fall apart under Solomon's reign. Solomon loved many foreign women, and then as a result, he loved foreign gods. And because things got so terribly off track with Solomon, God said he would tear the kingdom out of the hands of Solomon's son. Ten out of twelve tribes would rebel from the Davidic monarchy and form a separate kingdom. And from there on out, things would just spiral downwards for both kingdoms. So we see in a few hundred years, this promise of dynasty, this Davidic dynasty, this everlasting throne and kingdom goes straight into exile. Dynasty to exile in Babylon. No land, no king, no kingdom. In one of the exilic psalms, Psalm 137, we read, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the question for every Israelite at that moment in history, at that moment in exile is, well, has God broken his promise? What about his promise for this everlasting king and kingdom and dominion? Well, the answer is that the pe for the people of faith in Israel, these people of faith looked beyond the failed monarchy of David. Even though the kingdom was conquered, even though the king was rotting in prison, they looked to the king who was seated in the heavens, setting up his anointed. Psalm 2 is about the ideal king who would rule for God and bring blessings to all the peoples of the earth. But it's important not to just read Psalm 2 in isolation. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually form an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. You've got to read them together. And Psalm 1 gives us the picture of the ideal Israelite. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Centuries later, God would do for his people what they could never do for themselves. The Messiah, the son of David, the ideal king in Israel, would be sent by God himself, would be sent by Yahweh, and that Messiah, that anointed one, would be Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. The one who would come and say, behold, I have come to do your will. I delight in your law. Your law is written on my heart. So not just meditating on God's law day and night. For Jesus Christ, his law, the law was written on his heart. And he wasn't just the ideal Israelite and ideal king. He was the priest that we all needed. Hebrews 5.5. 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Jesus Christ would be that ultimate high priest who would offer, not, not just offer sacrifices for sin year after year, but offer himself by dying on the cross as a payment for our sins, as a ransom from captivity, as a restoration from exile. But that's not all. In Acts 13, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The promises weren't broken. They were actually perfectly fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrected king, who, who is the public victory of, and vindication of God, public conquest of sin and death, and Satan. Psalm 2 is really about Jesus, the anointed Messiah for us. And this anointed Messiah, this king, is working his salvation in the midst of the earth. He has no pleasure that the wicked be destroyed, but that all would turn to him and live. That's why he's delayed his return. He is ruling and subduing his enemies through the preaching of the gospel so that those who are scheming against him can be his servants instead. That's why he gave us Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In the preaching of the gospel, as we tell others about Jesus, and as they come to him by faith, we see that the nations are becoming his heritage, that the ends of the earth are becoming his possession. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have experienced the, the firm and loving rule of his shepherd's staff because Jesus is your king. You're following him. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, the warning in Psalm 2 is clear. You need to stop scheming and start serving. You need to flee to the sun for refuge. We're warned to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling because his wrath is quickly kindled. One day time will run out. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the amazing thing, church, is that not only does that dominion belong to Christ, because we belong to Christ, we're united to him by faith, that dominion, that authority belongs to us as well. Revelation 2, 26. This is Jesus speaking to the church, to his people, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. You see, Jesus is the Messiah, God's own Son, the eternal Son of God. But by faith in his work, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become sons of God too. We rule the nations with a rod of iron alongside Christ. And isn't that amazing? This command to find refuge in him, to join with Christ, to join him in his authority and in his salvation, comes with this promise that blessed are all who take refuge in him. W.S. Plummer writes, we may not trust in men, ourselves or others. In particular, men may never put confidence in their own works, in their own merits, in their own strength, but must must take Christ Jesus as their wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, their prophet, priest, king. They're all in all, life, death, judgment, and eternity will prove all such men blessed. That's the message of Psalm 2. Bend or break. Bend the knee or be broken into bits. Because one day all of us will jump, will take this plunge from this life into eternity. And the question is, are you wearing a parachute? Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your parachute? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider what is going on in this world, thank you for the reminder from Psalm 2 that, God, you reign, or you are setting up your king, and your king will shatter all your enemies. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that we who were once enemies, who would have been shattered, are now your servants through the grace of Christ, through the grace of the gospel. So God, help us now, we pray, to serve you with fear, to rejoice with trembling, and to find you as our all in all, as our refuge, whatever circumstances we're going through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.